When we uh, moved to Ukraine in 2004, we moved to a small town, and uh, not a lot of great Russian teachers. I went there, and, and I was going to try. I, I bought a bunch of Russian books before I went, and uh, I was starting to. I knew the alphabet. I was good at the alphabet, and I, I knew some words really badly. And someone that had actually studied. Um, went to a school where they actually teach FBI agents uh, and, and CIA agents how to, how to speak foreign languages. He said, don't learn any Russian before you go. He says, all you'll do is make mistakes and memorize your mistakes before you go. Then you'll get there. You don't know if they have any strange peculiarities in the place where you are. And, you'll, it, it just, and then you'll have to unlearn all those and then learn the right way. Uh, so, so don't study any Russian before you go there. Uh, so we did. So we got there, and I knew nothing, really. I, I knew nothing. And so we said, well, let's, uh, let's go and get a teacher. So we got a teacher who was not a very good teacher. She was a, a college student. I think she might have just barely graduated. And she, didn't, she, she knew how to, she had uh, studied to teach Russian people how to speak English, not the other way around. Uh, and, and so she tried to do it in reverse. So she took all of her textbooks from, uh, from, you know, from doing this uh, and tried to go backwards. So it didn't really work that well, uh, but we, you know, we were able to survive. In, in the course of doing this, it was funny that the, the textbooks, of course this is 2004, all the textbooks they had were like Soviet-era textbooks. They still had all these old, old, old textbooks. And it was funny because uh, she would give me a sentence and I had to translate it, I'd, you know, and, and go through. And so there were some really bizarre sentences. I remember one sentence in particular, uh, and I had to translate this sentence into, um, I forget which, which way it was. Anyway, I think it was given in English, and I had to translate it into Russian or whatever it was. I was born into the family of secretaries. I had to translate that sentence. I'm like, I don't even know what that means. I was born into the family of secretaries. I'm like, I don't know. And then I, I thought about it. I, it dawned on me. I'm like, I'm looking for the copyright page. And it's a Soviet-era uh, textbook. And, and this is a reflection of their culture. I'm talking about family businesses. Uh, imagine having the being assigned the family business that, that in your family, your family is going to be secretaries. And that was the, that was the Soviet system. Uh, and uh, just a bizarre thought to me. Uh, we're, we're finishing up our, our month uh, talking about the duties that, that Jesus has uh, in, in regards to the legal affairs. And we're going to be uh, looking at a a role, a legal role that Jesus holds that is a family business. Uh, he's given a position which he has received from the Father. The Father used to do it and says, all right, your job now. And so as we begin, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing in his kingdom, and he goes on and on, because, you know, that's how Paul does. He loves run-on sentences, and we're not going to read the whole chapter uh, but, but this gives us just this insight into a family job. Because when we read the scriptures, uh, and, and we're going to look at this in, in just a second, uh, 
We think of God the Father as the judge. I even talked about that last week when we talked about we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And we think of, here's Christ uh, as the, the, the lawyer on our behalf. We've talked about that extensively last week and, and in going to the judge. And yet here we read almost in, in a contradiction that, that here is Jesus as the judge. Well, this is confusing, right? It's not a contradiction, it's just teaching divine thoughts in human language and, and, and to humans who are way down here and don't understand how things work, sometimes gets confusing. If you don't think so, as we learn about, just learning about our judge, we're going to look at who is my judge. These are five things that the, the New Testament tells us about the judge. Well, it tells us in John, and, and notice all these are in John, by the way. So it's not just even the New Testament. John seems to give us some conflicting messages on being the judge. The Father judges no one, only the Son, in John chapter 5, verse 22. Well, we read in John chapter 8, verse 50, that the Father is the judge. That's okay, because John turns around in chapter 12 and says, Jesus didn't come to judge. And then if we back up just a little bit to John chapter 9, he says, Jesus did come for judgment. And then in John 8, 16, we can read that both the Father and the Son judge. That about covers it all. Are you a little confused yet? I mean, we got nobody judging. We got everybody judging. Some judging. Well, I don't know. What is the? What is this position? What is the nature of this family business? I'm confused. I'm thoroughly confused. I'm not gonna suggest to you that I have this figured out. I'm gonna give some arguments. If that's a word that's acceptable. I'm going to present some possible explanations as to what this may mean, uh, as best as I can. I want to begin with a premise. I begin from the premise that the Bible does not contradict itself, and certainly that John does not con contradict himself five times in the same book. If, if I cannot trust the scriptures to teach me 100% accurately, then I cannot trust it at all. I have to begin from that premise. If I, don't, if I don't accept that premise, then we might as well dismiss and go home and enjoy a beautiful afternoon. In fact, I don't have to go to Bible camp this afternoon, which I have to do. Because we might as well just throw this whole thing away. If I cannot trust with 100% accuracy, the Scriptures. So that's the premise I'm going to begin from. And I want to look at Acts chapter 17, verse 31, because to me this starts to, not completely, but starts to explain some of the, the, the conflicts that we read in John. It says, Times of ignorance got overlooked, but now commands every people, uh, all, all men everywhere, sorry, I'm just stuck on whatever I memorized it in, uh, to, to repent because he's fixed the day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. And so this kind of explains a little bit, not completely, but a little bit of our problem. We, we have this problem, who's judging? Well, the Father's judging. No, the, the, the Son is judging. They're both judging. None's judging. Who's, I don't know. But we seem to see here a judgment by proxy. 
that the Father does it, but He's it's under His umbrella, at least. But the, the, the specific one who does it is Christ. And that, that's what we're talking about. It's a family business. Right? Well, if someone has a family business, the, the, the owner, the father of the business might not do everything. He might give some stuff out to this son and some out to this son and, and they do different things. And so it is the father's business, but it could be this person who does a specific duty within that business. And I think that explains a little bit of our difficulty, but not all of it. As we continue on, we would look at a specific job description. There's uh, different types of judgment if we looked at the Scriptures. We see the word judgment used in different ways. And that explains, I think, the, the remainder of our problem. And we'll look at this. There's first the analysis of judgment. You know, not all, not all people uh, do the same thing in judgment. There's a lot of different types of judges. You know, if you're a trial judge, right, and you're going to sit in court and figure out who's guilty and who's... That's going to be... You're going to have a significantly different job than, say, if you are a Supreme Court justice, right? They're both justice, justices, but they do a completely different job. Not that one couldn't do the other or the other couldn't do one... But the nature of their work is different. And some judges are more about analyzing things from the past and analyzing different legal matters. Uh, so there's an analysis of judgment. There's the verdict of judgment. In other words, sometimes judgment has to do with uh, the, the final result. You're guilty. And that can be called the judgment. And specifically, in the, in the biblical, um, uh, in biblical terminology. Judgment can refer to the punishment. Right? Like, like Technically speaking, if we want to be technical, you could be acquitted and still have gone through a judgment. Right? You have the judgment of acquitted. But a lot of times, the word judgment specifically referred to the guilty plea, or to the guilty verdict. Uh, so that's a, a important to know when we're reading which one of these is, is being referred to. And we have the precedent of judgment, right? So, so a, a, a judgment, a judge might look back on various precedents from the past. We're talking about that analysis. And so a judgment might have a precedent. And so a previous judge who has decided something, in his making that decision, that judgment... Has a, has a precedent that other people will draw upon. That's a part of judgment. And this, this is all these different... It really is complex. And so as we look at this, I want to go back through here and look at some of these uh, statements and some of these things that we've already looked at. And we understand a little bit more of Christ. What was Christ's primary purpose? Well, we read a statement. I have not come for judgment, but to save. And so, his primary purpose was not for the guilty verdict. Christ did not come on this earth at that time for the purpose of delivering a guilty verdict to people. That was not his primary purpose. 
There was a judgment involved, but not that type of a judgment. All right? So, so you see how some of these statements start falling <coughs> into place as we look at these. Um, and then we would look at the procedure. Look at the procedure or the means. He came to establish a legal precedent. He says, I have come for judgment of this world. I have come for judgment. That is, in establishing a a legal precedent for which there would be a judgment later on. I'm establishing a precedent upon which there will be a judgment. I have come for that purpose. I haven't come to do the guilty verdict yet, but I've come to establish the legal precedent. And the precedent was set through his death and through his resurrection, through his life, through his words that he spoke. There's this precedent established. You see, a system of justice that gives a precedent to set some free will necessarily be the same precedent used for the guilty verdict for others. See, it's one precedent. And we look at the result. That is, when it's all over, Christ will sit as a judge. He will no longer be an advocate when it's all over. He will be done with that. Numerous pictures in our New Testament represent that as Christ finally getting that position in which He will sit as judge and determine and deliver those verdicts. At that point, there will be no advocate. At that point, it's said and done. The statements on my behalf have been long made. I've had a lifetime of them. At that point, Christ sits in judgment. And so you see, all those conflicting statements in John don't really conflict. They're really all a part of the same thing. And so what we want to do with our remaining time is not look at and decipher all the the details of what Christ does, but I want to know the judge. You want to know the judge. Don't you want to know the judge? There's no one better to know than the judge. Well, to know the judge is to know the basis of the judgment. I need to know how he's going to judge. Well, we're going to run through some scriptures here. Isaiah chapter 11 begins, he says, The spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. This is all a reference to Christ. He will not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes based on what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips shall he kill the wicked. And so we see this reference to righteousness in judgment, that Christ's judgment is moral. Know that. Know that we, we, we can focus on a lot of things about judgment, but it is first moral in the prophecies of Christ. Even before He's here on the earth setting up precedents and coming to save, it's established. Listen, whatever He does, it's going to be on the basis 
of an ethical system. We saw last week that he is a righteous advocate. He is also a righteous judge. Christ came to give us the answers to the test. We have the answers to the test. It's a righteous judgment. He judges not based on what he sees. He has all the information available. There's some judges, I mean, they're just very limited. But he says, I've got all the information. Don't worry. I've come to, to give you the answers. Now, a righteous judgment sounds pleasant, doesn't it? But a righteous judgment is absolute. It is uh, inescapable. And a lot of people don't like that concept. I want you to take another look at this and notice that the people that we think should be you know, maybe should get a, an easy pass on the test. Don't get an easy pass on the test. The poor will be judged. Even the meek will be judged. Now, they might get a favorable judgment in the end, but they will be judged as well. They don't get a pass on this. He is a righteous judge for the good and for the worse. Romans chapter 2, verse 16. Again, in the middle of a, a long sentence. We're just going to pull out a little phrase. I'm not taking it out of context. I'm just kind of reducing it to illustrate one point. He says, On that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Again, we see judgment by proxy. Right? The Father is kind of over the judgment, but it will be Christ doing this. And it will be Christ, just as we saw in this, uh, the, the last thing that, that we read in Isaiah, that he won't judge based on what he sees. Again, he, we see ju- judging the secrets of men. It is an informed. Christ is completely informed. There will, there will be no um, secreting away some information. Christ will know everything. There's an idea out there that um, I don't know how it got started. And it would be nice if it were true, but I'm not sure I can really rely on it. That is that Christians won't be judged. That, that somehow because I've been forgiven of my sins, that God is not going to call those back into account. Now, God might not use them to condemn me, but there is no statement anywhere that says that Christ is not going to call those things into account in the judgment. This is going to forgive them. That in terms of uh, in terms of my guilt, they won't be used against me. But the secrets of men are going to be known. Why, if I'm going to be forgiven 
ultimately would God do that? Well, why, if I'm ultimately going to be forgiven, would there even be a judgment? Why, why a judgment? If God knows who's going to be guilty or innocent, why, why even go through the, the charade of it all? And I think the point is the, so that everybody will know that it was a righteous judgment. That, that Christ is going to sit as judge. Every knee is going to bow. Not just the guilty people. Everybody who gets a verdict is going to know that it was a righteous judgment. Those who go in guilt will know that they got what they deserve. And those who go and get a favorable verdict will know they didn't deserve it. That they are only there by the grace of God. It will be a righteous judgment. And it will be an informed judgment. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 16, he says, Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed. Let him glorify God in that name, for it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. And I have taken this out of context intentionally. Because it's not talking about the final judgment. This is talking about a, an immediate persecution that was going to be allowed. And that's what kind of a trial this was. Don't want to misappropriate a scripture. But I want to illustrate something with this scripture. And that is that, as we've said, the righteous do not escape what everybody else gets. We will not escape the same thing that everybody else goes through. Neither here nor there. Everybody goes through trials. The judge, and in this case, even says, listen, it begins with the household of God. Not only do you not get skipped over, not only do you not get favorable treatment, but it starts with you. He says, the judgment will begin with the household of God. Of faith. That's where judgment starts. It will be thorough. His judgment is thorough. No one's going to slip through the cracks. So we know the basis of the judgment. Now let's know the priority of the judgment because this is really the important part of it all. Know, to know Christ, to know Christ as judge is to know the priority. And we've already kind of gone through some of this. Christ said, I have come to save, not to judge. That's not really what he wanted to do was to judge people. It's what he has to do. He came to save. That was his priority. That's what he wanted. Romans chapter 3 verse 24 says, we are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. We already talked about Christ as propitiation. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over the former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be the just and the justifier 
of the one who has faith in Jesus. And actually, it's interesting that Jesus holds two roles that are contradictory here. Jesus holds dual roles. Now, we look at just and justifier, and they kind of have the same root, and that's true. Even in the Greek, it's the same, it's the same root word, but they are two completely different roles. Just means equitable. A justifier would be more like mercy, to, to make someone innocent almost. That's a completely different role. It's almost contradictory to being fair. It's, it's more about mercy than fairness or correctness. And so he holds these contradictory roles. He wants someone to be innocent. That's what he wants. But I'm guilty. So this judge has this problem. He's got he's to be both just and justifier. I tried to explain to someone in Russia what justify means. Because he's, it, 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 my translator, he's like, he had a problem with words. He always wanted to know the concept of words. And justifier doesn't always work in, a lot of words don't work in other languages. So I, I explained it to him this way. I said, you know when you, when you, you have uh, your uh, Microsoft Office? Yeah. You go to Microsoft Office and you open up Word and you're typing on a document. And uh, there's a little button up there called Justify. Now, if you don't care how your documents look and it's just important to have the text, then you don't, might not use that particular thing. But I, I noticed that the lines every Sunday when I preach up here, I notice that these chairs don't line up. And it drives me buggy. And I notice the, the clock is off just a little bit. And I notice these things. And so when I type in a document, the first thing I do when I start typing, justify. And they all line up. It's nice. And then I type and it just automatically does it as I go. It's nice. They were thinking of me when they made justify. This is the role that Christ does. And he's like, oh, I, it, it meant so much to him because Jenny is a little bit like me like that. Christ fixes it and says, you're uneven here and you're off here and you're there. And I'm just going to make it nice and smooth. Just like it's supposed to be. He's a justifier. He won't just render just verdicts. He will acquit. James chapter 2, verse 12. <clears throat> he says, So speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And this is how he gets it done. This is how he gets it done. He establishes and has already established a precedent. Christ came a long time ago not to rule with an iron fist, but to come and establish a precedent. And He established a precedent when He was here that mercy triumphs over judgment. And He did that through His death on a cross. He triumphed over a guilty plea 
by sacrificing to give mercy so that he can come back later and say, I've established a precedent. And based on this precedent, I can give you an innocent verdict. Even though you're not innocent. There's a precedent. The precedent is that mercy triumphs over judgment. But the guilty plea, or the, the guilty verdict, the mercy precedent has a way that it has to be adjudicated. It has to apply. And for it to apply, I have to have shown mercy. Well, before we get to our conclusion, I want to read a longer text. It won't fit up there. Matthew chapter 25. As with anything, you've got to read the fine print. Right? Matthew chapter 25. And we're almost out. Promise. We're going to begin at verse 31. It says, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the holy angels with Him, and then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And all the nations will be gathered before Him, and He will separate them one from another, as a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats, and He will set the sheep on His right hand. Judgment will begin with the household of faith, right? He will separate the sheep out first. Then He will separate the goats on His left. And the King will say to those on His right hand, Come, You blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger. You took me in. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. And I was in prison, and you came to me. And then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you drink? When would we see you a stranger, take you in, or naked and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and send to them, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it to me. Then he will say to those on the left, Depart from me, cursed into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, you did not take me in. I was naked, but you did not clothe me. I was sick, I was in prison. You never visited me. And they will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry, thirsty, stranger, naked, sick, in prison, and did not help you? And he will answer them, saying, I assuredly tell you, insofar as you did not do it to even one of the least of these, you never did it for me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteousness, but the righteous into eternal life. That's the fine print. That's how you get into this precedent that we've talked about. This precedent of mercy. These are the specifics of mercy. God's purpose, Christ's purpose, has always been a merciful justice. The sacrifice of self for others embodies everything that Christ was here to do. 
That was his entire life. That's what he came to do. He never came to sit there and tell everybody how bad they were and how he was going to punish them. And mercy is such an important part of his judgment. And so, as we leave here today, I ask you if you've seen the judge. Know the judge, but the judge will pop up in some interesting places. They even have shows now. I, I saw a, a TV show as an undercover boss or whatever. Bosses disguise themselves and go in, and people don't know it, and people have been fired on the spot. <laughs> Uh, simply for acting in a way that the boss is like, what? I, go, I can't believe that people do this. Undercover boss. Undercover judge. That's what this story is, Matthew chapter 25. Christ is an undercover judge. When did we see it? I, what? I, yeah, it was undercover. And you didn't do it. Insofar as you did not do it to the least of these. So as we leave here and go throughout our week... Look for the judge. He will be hidden. But he will need mercy. And those who show mercy will get that precedent that triumphs over judgment.